0: winner take all, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional enterprises. And we try and figure out where this is all going to land. Uh, we have just two topics this morning. We're going to go deep on the StubHub divestiture that um, eBay sold StubHub to via GoGo for about $4 billion, all cash deal. Interesting. And uh, that's where we're going to start. And we're going to go somewhat deep into this. So Um, The background is that Elliott Management, the activist investor hedge fund, which has also been an activist in AT&T and other companies of of late, Um, they have, uh, I think, a mid to late 30-year-old portfolio manager who has led the charge on these activist investor deals um, with both eBay and AT&T. And um, one of their big things was that they want um you know they think that that the different business units within these companies are not being valued correctly uh same thing in AT&T if you look at their TV and Time Warner acquisitions and the same argument was kind of being applied to eBay uh particularly if you look at things like StubHub and so they were basically saying hey we want you to sell eBay why want you to look at selling off StubHub um we don't see enough growth in Subhub. It's not being valued properly. It's not core to the to the company's uh you know business, all these kinds of things. Um Devin Wenig, the now former CEO, uh who was CEO at the time and had been CEO for I don't know, seven or eight years. Um, he had been with you know, had been with the company for a long time. Um, he left. He left earlier this year. Uh he was also on the board of GM. And I think the guy was doing a pretty good job at eBay stock price and the investors would um, certainly beg to disagree with that point. But Devin did not agree with Elliot's plans. And he said, look, I think it's better if we part ways amicably. And he stepped down as CEO. He didn't want to fight it. A few months later, they had an interim CEO uh, and they are now selling StubHub. Who are they selling StubHub to? Ironically, the same guy that started StubHub, uh, this guy named Eric Baker. And apparently the story is that he started StubHub um, in business school and he was uh, a co-founder of StubHub. He didn't carry on um, and he wasn't actively at StubHub when it was acquired in 2007. Um, I think it was acquired in 2007 uh, for $310 million by eBay. Um, so it's a pretty good return, right? They bought it for $310 million. They are selling it for $4 billion. Not a bad uh, 12-year return. Eric, meanwhile, started this company called Viagogo in 2005. StubHub was acquired in 2007. He started Via Gogo in 2005, primarily to take the similar business model of StubHub and expand that abroad uh, and go to Europe and go outside of the United States. And so it says here they've raised $65 million. Eric has said publicly that the business is profitable. And so it's very surprising to me that they were able to raise $4 billion in cash to go buy um, Subhub. But I presume that they've have, they have a profitable business, hopefully good growth behind that business. And um, we're then able to go get some, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of debt behind this uh, acquisition but some debt, maybe some equity, I don't know, probably just a lot of debt. Um, and they were able to go and, and make this acquisition of Subhub. So, <clears throat> um, you know, I think there's two things to dig into here. One is, is $4 billion a good price? Here's a good chart showing StubHub's GMV and revenue. Um, so you can see it's lumpy, which is cyclical and seasonal in nature. But it's also kind of trending downward. And so that was, hey, we have sluggish growth in StubHub. Um, What do we do? This kind of seems that it's hit a wall. Let's sell the business, right? Devin differed. I think Devin had some plans about how they could reinvigorate the StubHub business. And, um, but, you know, doing over $4 billion in annual GMV. So what's interesting is the multiple. That's basically a 1x GMV multiple. From a revenue standpoint, they're a little under 4x uh, revenue multiple. Those are actually um, somewhat low multiples uh, on the business. And so I don't think that this is a great deal. You know, I think they wanted to sell the business. This happened in a pretty accelerated timeline. In September, he stepped down. It's December. They sell the business in three months. You sell a $4 billion business in three months. I mean, literally, the guy must have stepped down. The interim CEO came in, must have hired a broker right away, and started a process to sell the business. Clearly, that's what Elliott Management wanted. I don't think they got the best deal for the money on this. Um, A 1x GMV multiple just seems very low when you look at other comparables for other marketplace-driven businesses, um, you can normally expect to see at least two to sometimes five x GMV. It all depends on, you know, what the take rate is, and um, and obviously, is it profitable or not, and and what do the economics of the business look like? Not all GMV is made the same, um, but one x is is definitely on the low end of the um, market, especially given StubHub's. Uh, dominance in the space. There are some smaller, like Broadway focused kind of like marketplaces um, uh, that that have gotten, you know, maybe 20 or $30 million here or there. But it, th- th- there's a couple steps missing here, right? Um, unless the business is actually losing a lot of money, which I don't think it is. Um, why are you selling it at a 1X GMV uh, multiple? That seems kind of odd. That's Point number one. Um, point number two, and I think, and I don't know if this was on the table, but the thing that eBay has always struggled for in whether it's their traditional marketplace, or I'd say even if it's um, with their with, with StubHub, is that eBay touts itself on only being a, a marketplace in the sense that they don't compete with their sellers. And if you remember, Jeff Bezos had called out eBay in their annual shareholder letter that came out in like April of 2019. Um, And Jeff Bezos was knocking how fast um, Amazon's growth has been, marketplace growth compared to eBay's. So then Devin Wenig responded to Jeff Bezos. So while I appreciate the ink dedicated to eBay from the CEO of the company not not focused on competition, I think I'll dedicate my letter to customers, purpose, and strategy. We don't compete with our sellers. We don't bundle endless services to create barriers to competition. Those last two parts of this, that's very key to the eBay thinking, at least at the time. eBay isn't being a one-piece seller like Amazon, right? They're not creating their own white label products. They're not, um, as we've spoken about, saying, hey, you're a third-party seller. Give me your purchase order for these items so I can... Verify that they're legitimate, and then I'm going to go directly to the manufacturer in China and cut you out. Yeah, that's not, that's not cool. Um, but Amazon absolutely has been doing that uh, a myriad of times. I'm sure they're trying to clamp down on that, and not do that anymore, because they've gotten into trouble for a number of reasons on that. eBay does not compete with their third party sellers. eBay is not acting as a one piece seller. So, similarly, if you look at the ticket industry and you look at a Ticketmaster, for example, Ticketmaster. Um, has all these lockup deals with all of the venues and the establishments, right? And then they went to go buy um, uh, Live Nation to to then do all the shows and, and run all the, and actually put on a lot of the concerts, right? And then uh, work with and contract out with the artists. So they've gotten very vertically integrated um, into this business. And so eBay has not wanted to do that. That's like, very much so against the ethos, at least with, with Devin at the helm of of, of the eBay ethos uh, behind how they operate. So that was pretty interesting to me. Um, I think for those two points, right? If that came on the table, I think now StubHub um, would have a lot more tools at its disposal to secure inventory, to negotiate directly with uh, suppliers being, say, venues. Um, or or consent, uh, um, you know, people that put on these concerts. Um, <clears throat> how can you serve secure inventory as a 1P reseller and then also let the 3P marketplace come in and complement the two? But if eBay and Subhub don't want to put their balance sheet, don't want to compete, it's two things, right? Like you're putting your balance sheet at risk, but there's also some upside. Amazon doesn't really use it. So much for the upside. They really make the margin on the 3P marketplace, but they use the 1P, the the white label brands, to just make sure that they're, that they are <clears throat> driving immense value to the customer and, and and it's kind of break even that business, um, but then they make their money on the marketplace. So I don't know if it's a similar model for Subhub, but I think how you use the balance sheet. And I get the sense that ViaGoGo has tie ups in Europe, and I get the sense that ViaGoGo is doing this model where they are establishing relationships to secure inventory. Um, in In a linear way and in a marketplace way, uh, I know they have a number of tie ups abroad where you know where their business is based. so um, I think if viaGogo brings that hybrid kind of linear marketplace model to SubHub, I think that's a big win. There's obviously other things that I'm sure Eric Baker has up his sleeve to come back to the u s um and merge these two things. I don't think there's as much maybe there's some customer overlap, right? If you're operating in Europe, those network effects are pretty kind of localized, at least in a country or a region. You don't necessarily have a lot of customers and suppliers that are now cross you know, country between Europe and the US, maybe some on the supply side. Uh, but on the demand side, it's probably pretty compartmentalized in uh, you know, from a geography standpoint. So, I think eBay. You know, the, they had a lot of pressure from the investors. They could have gotten more money, um, but uh, but maybe there's just a limited amount of people that were interested in buying the business. Via Gogo being a smaller company, definitely coming up with a lot of money to buy this business. Certainly, a lot of debt involved. Um, if they were able to sell it to, say, a large other tech monopoly then um, I'm sure they could have tried to get a bigger multiple. But I don't think the seems like the larger tech monopolies were that interested in the space, especially when you have the presence of a ticket master, which is so dominant uh, already in the industry. So kind of interesting how this netted out. I don't know if it really netted out as well as Elliot expected. I guess they didn't have to sell the business. But I feel like at this point, they pretty much ejected the CEO, Devin, um, and then They started this process. They became an activist investor pretty much on the premise that eBay should divest its assets like Subhub. And then if you go through the process and the results don't come back, say, as good as you hoped, but you still got a pretty decent result, yeah, you're probably going to take it. Um, So honestly, I think it's a good win for Viagogo. It's so-so for eBay. Eh, I don't know. I think they could have gone better had they maybe just empowered Devin more to maybe show some growth or try to um, take some more risks with the business and then maybe try and sell it. But because it was kind of the the revenue or the GMV was stagnant and possibly slightly declining, that obviously didn't help the sale either. Um, so, uh, Yeah, very interesting to see how this worked out. From an Elliott standpoint, yeah, I don't know. I don't think this is a slam dunk. I think they have a much stronger stronger argument with the AT&T scenario. That's much more complicated in terms of how do you actually execute and divest those assets because they're so intertwined and they're so massive. And who's going to buy them? I don't know. Who wants to buy DirecTV at this point? Or Time Warner for that matter? Mm, I don't know. (laughs) Um, That was $100 billion for Time Warner. And I think like sixty billion dollars for Directv. No one's paying sixty billion dollars for Directv anymore. That's so much. So they might have the right ethos, but the execution of it, mm, I don't know. That's going to be tough. I, I, I would not put all my eggs in that basket. Even though I think directionally, at least with AT and agree. I don't necessarily so much agree with the ethos of this um, in eBay's circumstance, though. So the last thing here is about um fig it till you make it. So every day there are more and more of these like pseudo hybrid marketplaces, right? It's like I'm a traditional retailer um or I'm a B2B distributor and I'm now going to have a complementary marketplace. Okay. Complementary marketplaces are a sham. They are nice because they allow you to say that you are doing a marketplace. What's a complementary marketplace? It's like if you are um selling uh food and then you say well i'm going to go sell clothes um complimentary right non competitive and it might need, it might be a nice way to dip your toe into marketplace um so there's a company in uh, in england uh, a grocery store in england called sainsburys they bought a textile they bought a ba- basically like a a clothing you know department store a few years ago and they rolled these things these two things together. Um, so now they're both grocery it's kind of like Target right or Walmart and you kind of put the two things together um, So when you start doing solely complementary products with that it's a very slippery slope because what your tendency is to do is to say how do I go build supply from um, large other say traditional clothing retailers and let me go get other large retailers like myself and say, hey we're not competitive, um, let, we sell complementary things. I sell food. You sell clothes. Let's partner up. And um, sounds great. Here's the problem when you partner with a large retailer or a large distributor in an adjacent industry. You're cheating the whole process. You don't get any economics. So you might get their product and you might get their inventory. But can you command a take rate on that inventory? Will... Um, you know, a multi-billion dollar clothing department store company give you 10 to 15% of revenue of the sale to you, the marketplace? Absolutely not. There is zero chance that they will ever do that. And so, um, when you cower to large partners in the early stages of trying to uh, become a marketplace, if you are a traditional retailer or distributor, you have basically, um, Taking a shortcut at your own expense, you might be able to have a press release that says, hey, look, we just did this big partnership. We have you know, 300,000 new SKUs of inventory of clothes that we can sell to our customers. Um, you are missing the, the pain of what it takes to build a true marketplace. Um, because the key is to start bottom up. When you start with small suppliers and the small fragmented supply, you're able to get leverage because the whole point is that I'm able to go to alternate sources of supply, i.e. small retailers. Like if you look at how Farfetch started for luxury goods, they started, one of their first uh, suppliers in New York City is this um, really hip, chic um, retail store called Patron of the New. Okay. If anyone likes to buy really luxury kind of hip clothing, uh, go look at Patron of the New. They've got a nice store in Soho, and Patron of the New is one of the first uh, stores to join Farfetch. They've been working with Farfetch for many, many, many years, and so that's a great example. They have they do have very limited inventory, um, very exclusive inventory from Dior and all these crazy brands. Um, but the marketplace starts small. You find the small suppliers. That will happily say, yeah, I'll pay you 10 or 15%, or I will agree to join a marketplace where the take rate is not in a contract. And basically, the marketplace can change the take rate. You think a large, uh, complimentary a retailer would ever agree to that? Absolutely not. And they're going to want a bunch of product requirements and product features and product integrations. And it's going to take you forever to build that product, six to 12 months to build that product. You want to stand up a marketplace where you can get suppliers on in a matter of weeks or days. Um, and so how do you do these hacks, right? Because you can go get small suppliers and that's really the best way to start. So when you start as a complementary marketplace and you do these large partnerships, um, that's a road I would not recommend going down. If you do a complimentary marketplace, you should start from the bottom up. How do I get small fragmented supply? The mom and pops. Um, and you start there. Because if you can start there and you can make that business work there, then you can make that business work, certainly as you scale with the larger players. And once you get to the larger players, both the larger customers um, that have higher expectations of you know product and experience, and the larger suppliers who have a higher expectation of product and experience, Um, your platform has now enough maturity, product market fit and throughput and capability that you can both meet their expectations and you have leverage on economics, which means that you can actually make a decent margin. Um, The best and truest way to try and start a marketplace if you are an existing retailer or distributor is to start in your own backyard. How do you disrupt yourself? And the funny thing is, if you are a large distributor or retailer, many times that marketplace, if you are starting bottom up, is actually working with customers or suppliers that aren't that competitive with you. That might actually be accretive because you might be finding customers that your existing business doesn't cater to that well today. Um, And you want to try and find these pockets of underserved markets, both on the customer and the supplier side, and try and cater to them. Now, then you say, well, okay, I have my existing website my existing e-commerce experience. I want to show other complementary products on that website. How do I do that? Um, so if you remember Jet.com, which Walmart bought in 2016 for $3.3 billion, um, which is going quite fantastically for Mark, uh, one of the founder and CEO of Jet and Doug, CEO of Walmart. Um, they're doing very, very well. But what Jet had to do, one of the early hacks that Jet had to do, they had to post a lot of inventory. They didn't have this inventory. They didn't have business. They didn't have demand. So how do you launch a marketplace? And how do you get this engine going, that chicken and egg problem, when you don't have demand and you can't convince suppliers and you can't go to all these small third-party sellers and say, hey, post your products on my site and do fulfillment for me and all these kinds of things. So in the early days of Jet, Jet was buying products would would post products on their website so you could go on Jet and buy it. And then they would buy it. You would buy it as the customer. And then the Jet fulfillment people will go to Amazon and buy it on Amazon. And then sometimes have it fulfilled directly to you from Amazon. But you'd still get the product. But you were getting it from Jet and they would certainly not make any money or they would lose money on that order. But the point was that they needed to get the engine going. And the problem is that if you are... Having to, if you make the supply the dependency in the early days of getting your marketplace going, whether you're building it as a marketplace separate from the core business, not branded with the core business, or whether you're showing that marketplace and in the inventory on the core business's e commerce site, right? If you are putting supply as the dependency, you're not going to win. You're not going to get enough product catalog growth. You're not going to get enough throughput, enough competitiveness um, in the marketplace to compete with the experience the customers already have. This is particularly applicable in the retail segment. B2B distribution is a little bit farther behind. But that's where this ethos goes of fake it till you make it, which is if you don't want to make suppliers a dependency, then you need to fake it till you make it. And what does that mean? That means you need to show inventory that you don't have or that suppliers haven't necessarily listed explicitly on your site or you're showing a price you don't really know you can fulfill it at, but you feel pretty confident that you can fulfill it at that price. And the platform is going to make the customer whole because you're going to say, well, maybe, you know, maybe I, maybe this price I showed, uh, maybe I did lose a little bit of money. Okay. But I'm going to eat it because I need to get this hamster wheel going, right? I need to play the chicken and egg game. I need to solve for demand first. And I need to get enough demand that I can now <clears throat> um, open up to third-party sellers. Now, this is back to the complementary product dilemma. Because if you're only opening up complementary inventory, if you're the grocery company, let's pick another example. Let's say you're an electronic retailer or you're a furniture company or pick any, other, any industry, right? And you're saying, I'm going to go into a complementary vertical. Which means that the customers coming to your site, only a portion of them are going to be looking for that complimentary product, right? If I'm going to Best Buy, I'm going to buy electronics. If I'm going to Macy's, I'm expecting to buy clothing. So let's say Macy's goes to Best Buy. It says, let's do a partnership so that my customers can buy electronics from Best Buy on Macy's. Okay. If you wanted to really juice demand in, in what I was just talking about, okay, some people that are buying clothes on Macy's might look for electronics. But probably most people that want to buy an electronic are going to go to Best Buy or Amazon directly or something, something like that. You get the point, right? You're not having a one-to-one relationship. Every customer coming to Macy's wants to buy electronics. So the um, amount of throughput that you can provide to these complementary sellers is limited. That's my point. You want to provide a lot of throughput very quickly to third-party sellers. That's where you need to disrupt yourself. That's where you need to say, I'm going to let my internal buyers, just using Macy's as an example here, I'm going to let my internal buyers, um, could be Macy's, could be Target, Walmart is doing this, compete with third-party sellers. Which means the inventory that I'm posting for clothing on my website could also be fulfilled or sold by a third-party seller. The same exact products that I have now bought and put onto my balance sheet. I'm opening this thing up. So you hear Target talking about a curated marketplace, right? Where they are handpicking every seller that comes into the marketplace and vetting each one of them. You can't do it. That's why you had Walmart, which has now been in the game for three years, spending billions of dollars, Doug McMillan, saying, hey, in the first nine months of 2019, we added 10 million SKUs in nine months in 2019 of inventory to walmart.com. 9.5 million SKUs came from third-party sellers. Only 500,000 came from the 1P where I have a Walmart seller procuring product, putting it on balance sheet and reselling it. Only 500,000 SKUs. So um, you see that, that dynamic, like literally 95% of that inventory Is coming from third-party sellers but that was only because now they've gotten the engine going because they've got now 20 to 30 billion dollars in throughput on e-com and a big chunk of that going to third-party sellers because now now that's interesting i'm a third-party seller okay i could make decent money not amazon money but i can make decent enough money um and amazon is now very competitive for a third-party seller and, and by the way, the, the platform itself is competing very aggressively from a one piece standpoint with third party sellers. I could go to Walmart and get some incremental income. That's interesting to me. But then now if, if you are going to a complimentary marketplace on Macy's, there's just not going to be enough throughput for Macy's to really jumpstart that engine. You have to open up the core of the business. That's not fun. That's scary stuff. Um, and you don't want to just do that willy nilly, but you got to take risks. And so that's why, um, you want to fake it till you make it, you got to fake it till you make it because otherwise there's no way of jump starting this engine. Um, and that's why, you know, you can try to insulate the business and have like a jet.com as a third party marketplace where you experiment, where you fail fast, where it's, it's loosely affiliated with the brand, but not totally affiliated with the brand. Um, where you do an acquisition where they were operating, they had traction, they had some product market fit, they had technology that was able to be brought into uh, the core business. Right. So, um, and, and the experience and the executives to bring that. So, and it's a cultural shift as well. But um, the point is there that if you, you need to figure out how to provide that huge scale um, to, to jumpstart demand to get small third-party suppliers onboarded in the beginning, not the large players. Then you can go to the large players once you have scale. And easy that even as we have seen the past couple of weeks, that the large suppliers like Nike just left Amazon because they're gonna, I'm guarantee you, they're gonna go do their own thing. I, I think they're gonna go do their own marketplace, not just their own linear e-commerce and, and retail stores. Last example on faking until you make it, uh, Handy, and uh, Oshin, the uh, co-founder and CEO, blurbed Modern Monopolies. Um, Handy was acquired by IAC and did a roll-up with Angie's List. It's an on-demand uh, service marketplace for like home services, cleaning, painting, plumbing, etc. When they first started, um, it was just a simple landing page website. I mean, you could throw it up in a day. Um, I don't know, maybe a few days, but it was very simple. You'd fill out a form. you say, I want someone to clean my house. They would set the price. So you would know the price. They weren't asking the cleaners to quote the project. So they would standardize the price, which as we talk about is a commoditized uh, product marketplace, or in this case, service marketplace. Just like, um, say, when Jet.com was faking until they make it, they're setting the price. They're the price setter. Uh, Handy was the price setter. Um, Uber is a price setter, right? Airbnb, not a price setter. So Handy was setting the price and then on